Good morning. Uh, as Cindy mentioned at the beginning of the uh, service, that we are starting a new uh, series uh, from the book of Esther. The, uh, if you look at uh, the church Bible, uh, it's uh, on page 396. 396. Uh, chapter, chapter 2. Well, if you look at the, uh, the, 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 the leaflets, it says chapter 1 and 2, but we're reading from chapter 2 today. So um, if you turn to page 396, is chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. And if you need a copy of the hard copy of the Bible, um, there are copies at the back, and one's being handed out. Just raise your hands if you need it once. Kay is holding up Bibles at the back. All right? We're there? Good. <clears throat> so, um, chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his reign to bring all these beautiful women into the harems at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the, women, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, and son of Shimei, and son of Kish, who had been carried into exiles from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Joachim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadasha, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as her own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyards of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. 
And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take to, with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning returned to another part of the harem to the care of Ashashtgai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he, he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his young uncle Abishah to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, the seventh years of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, hello. Thanks, James. Um, if I can ask you all to read the book of Esther. Actually, Esther is a long story, um, and I'm preaching really from the the setting part, chapters one and two of this one big story. And so I'd love for you to go home and read this book. Uh, it will only take about 20 minutes to read through it. Um, and it's a great book with many turns in the plot, and you'll find yourself um, just laughing out loud um, at, at what God has done. But I also, I want you to know that this is a slightly, uh, it's a bit of an R-rated sermon because it's an R-rated text. Uh, it's not uh, a, a, a nice and warm and fuzzy uh, kind of text, uh, but as we go through it, it's still God's word. So let's pray that God will speak uh, to us this morning. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for your word, and we thank you for Esther, and we thank you for this book that speaks to uh, your hand that guides the affairs of the world. And Lord, we pray that we'll come to it and we'll come to know you, that our faith would be strengthened in you uh, through it, that we might live uh, for your uh, glory in the midst of this sinful world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the questions that skeptics and those who struggle with their faith often ask me is, where is God? I don't see God. Why doesn't God make himself more obvious? Why doesn't he show himself to me? My, often, uh, my answer often has been uh, that actually God has made himself obvious. Psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. The creation speaks to his glory. He calls us also through his conscience, our conscience. Our, he's acted in history and he's given us the Bible and most clearly, he's, became, he's become a man in Jesus Christ. He lived and he died and he rose again from the dead. But when I say this, this doesn't often satisfy the people asking the question. Well, that happened long ago. Why doesn't God do something to me today? Why doesn't he show himself to me today? 
And if you think about the context of Esther, that must have been the question that people around Esther's time was asking. After all, this story of Esther is set when the majority of Jewish people were scattered, not in, they weren't living in Israel, but scattered all over the world. Because uh, it was the Babylon Empire, Babylon came and raised uh, Jerusalem, took down the wall and took all the articles of the temple out. And it was Babylon, but now Persia came over and took over that great um, empire and built an empire stretching, as we see in chapter 1, verse 1, from India to Kush, modern-day Pakistan, all the way to Sudan. And we're told in verse 2 that it was the third year of King Xerxes which historians place to be around 483 B.C. And to these Jews in Persia and beyond, God must have seemed silent. There were no synagogues. There were no temple. There's no Yahweh God, place to worship Yahweh God. They were surrounded by symbols of Babylonian power. They were surrounded by um, Persian, uh, Persian gods. And if they practiced their religion, well, they were going to be persecuted. They're going to be alienated. So where is God? Doesn't he care for people in exile? Or was he never there in the first place? And that's the question that we're supposed to ask as we read through the book of Esther. And just like them, the thing that I think makes it really hard for us, many, for many people to believe in God, is that the world is so evil. And we see that. We see the evil world in this book of Esther. Historians believe that at this time, Xerxes had just lost a great battle in Greece and has come back to Persia to muster up support from all over the empire to, uh, so that they could go back for another campaign against the Greeks. And in order to gain that support, he put on a show. Verse 4, For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. He called his military leaders, princes, and nobles from all over his empire to get a taste of Persian power. So at some point they came and, uh, during 180 days and, and renewed their loyalty to Persia. And just when you thought it was over, they, he gathered the people of Susa uh, for a party lasting seven days. Verses 6 to 8 describe, this is chapter 1, uh, describe how they all literally ate like a king, right? ate and drank like king. And about, about a century later, when Alexander the Great, uh, the Greek Empire, entered the palace of Susa, they discovered 1,200 tons of silver and gold bullions. And remember, each ton weighs, is, is like a, a small car. 1,200 bullions of silver and gold and 270 tons of minted gold coins. That was the wealth of the Persian Empire. And after showing off his wealth to the people from all over his empire, he wanted to show off his most prized possession, Queen Vashti. And when the king was drunk at the end of this seven-day party, he orders the queen to come wearing her royal crown, which some people take to mean only her royal crown. Verse 11, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. How could you imagine? So for good reasons, Queen Vashti said no. 
I mean, what's, he, what's she supposed to do? She's, she's supposed to come and have all these drunk men literally look at her? So she said no. But this was in front of everybody else. So the king became furious. After consulting with his cabinet, he banishes her. Uh, and a royal decree goes out to all corners of the Persian Empire, verse 22, that every man should be ruler over his own household. Already we see how evil that world is, right? We've seen display of power and wealth in order to go to war. We've seen drunken Xerxes uh, order his wife to perform in front of a crowd. And we see him abusing his power, banishing her, and then sending a royal edict to the ends of the empire. But then it gets worse. It comes to our chapter, chapter 2. The king's attendants then propose that they replace... Vashti, with the, uh, with the beautiful young virgin. And from, so what they do is they get these women from all over the empire. But this wasn't a beauty contest. It's much worse. Beautiful women were to be taken from all over the empire and brought to the king and king's harem. A group of women who were there for the king's sexual exploitation. They were given 12 months of treatment Six months of oil and myrrh, right? A skin treatment, and then six months of perfume treatment. An archaeologist describes this as a sort of uh, a, a gentle fire a lit, a perfume lit over a gentle fire. And what the women would do would, in their bare skin, they would wear a tent-like um, clothes to infuse all the fragrance into their skin. And all of this was for that one night with the king. When the time came, each of these young women would be called and taken into the king's chamber. And whoever pleased the king most in bed, well, she would be the queen. Everybody else, all these women who came, everybody else would be just added to the king's harem, or the lucky few, lucky few would be added to be the king's concubine. If this story makes you feel uncomfortable, it should. Because this isn't a description of God's world. This is a description of the fallen world, the fallen kingdom, fallen empire of Persia. Men were in power. Often they used their power to manipulate and to gain more of it. At home, they sought to rule over their household and order their wives to do their, their will, whatever that them, them may be. Women who stood up to their unjust husbands were punished. They were expected to be beautiful trophies for their husbands. But think about it. Isn't it striking? Chapter 1 was all about display of power and wealth. And chapter 2 is all about this sort of beauty contest. You might conclude that in Persian culture, back 2,500 years ago, if you just had these chapters, the thing that's most important for, uh, for men is wealth, the, the size of his wallet. And in chapter 2, we see uh, women, right? Women being valued for their physical beauty. Aren't we glad that we live in a world that's so different from that? Well, not much has changed, has it? The most important thing for many men in Hong Kong is wealth. This is a picture of a chandelier in my building where I live. The building is called the Palazzo Palace. 
I'm slightly embarrassed by it, but there's that, in Hong Kong, there seems to be so much of that ostentatious display of wealth because for many people, for many men, this is the most important thing for them. They want to display the power through wealth. Now, how about women? Right? I, I, I went to a wedding. I wonder how many uh, yesterday, uh, I wonder how much time men spend uh, in there to prepare for their wedding day and how much time women spend to prepare for their wedding day. Isn't the beauty the thing that we often look for in women? I shouldn't speak too loudly myself because my wife is beautiful, but I'm often dismayed by how Christian men, even, even Christian men, seem to value the outward beauty much more than the inward beauty. As for women being taken for uh, sexual pleasure of men, I only need to look at what goes on in Wan Chai. Sex trafficking is a big issue around the world, and it's, the, it's an issue in Hong Kong. As the U.S. government report came out and said that human trafficking is a significant or is inc- significantly increasing in Hong Kong with no evidence that the government is cracking down on it. Persia, Hong Kong, Korea, U.S., Australia, or wherever you're from, this is a sinful world. It's a fallen world. We're meant to be here, but we were meant to squirm in it. We're meant to long for a different world to come because the world is not supposed to be like this. As we read the book of Esther, we're supposed to say, this isn't the world that God has created. We, won't, we, don't, want to be, uh, we don't want the world to be like this. And the book will speak to us because it is a sinful world. But yet, it shows that God is in control, that God is doing His will in and through sinful people and the sinful world. And of course, I want to say that the world is fallen because we are fallen, because we are sinful people. We saw that in Xerxes and his advisors. But you'd expect the main character of Esther to be different, right? Heroes are meant to be different. Heroes are meant to be pure and brave. But actually, the two main characters of this story, Mordecai and Esther, well, if you look closely, they don't fare that well. Take Mordecai, chapter 2, verse 5. tells us that he's from a tribe of Benjamin, from a line of Jewish people that were taken uh, forcibly from Israel to relocate to Susa. He also has been taking care of an orphaned, orphan cousin named Hadassah, whose Persian name is Esther. He was a father to her. But the positive details end there. First is by just implication, by history. A few years back, many devout Jews were actually allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem wall and rebuild the country. Why didn't Mordecai go? Many returned, but Mordecai didn't. Perhaps many of these Jews made themselves at home in Babylon, in Persia, in other places. Maybe they had business uh, that was succeeding. Maybe they had other ambitions in those empires. For whatever reason, Mordecai didn't return back to Jerusalem. It gets worse. Many Jewish commentators talk about how Mordecai should have not let Esther go. A woman whom he considered a daughter, how could he let this daughter be taken away to be part of this harem? Why didn't he oppose this? Some say he should have defended her with his life. And the details about Mordecai's instruction to Esther isn't isn't flattering either. Esther doesn't reveal herself as a Jew 
in verse 10, because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Mordecai told her not to do it. Was it just purely for her protection, maybe? But this would have certainly compromised Esther and her faithfulness to Torah, to the, to, to the law, and to God. And Mordecai seems to be okay with it. And later on, chapter 3, we find out that Mordecai himself doesn't disclose that he's a Jew until he's forced to. Perhaps it was because of political ambition. He wants to ascend using maybe his cousin. How about Esther? Well, unlike Queen Vashti, she doesn't stand, stand up against an unjust king. She goes along with everything. And think about other heroes of exile in the Bible. Remember Daniel. What did Daniel do? Daniel drew a line. Daniel said, I will not eat the food that the king gives me. Right? He drew a line. Uh, Daniel's friends refused to bow down to an idol and face the fiery furnace. But Esther does none of it. She eats the food that's prepared in front of her. However unkosher they are, she's willing to hide her nationality and her faith. She's okay with being part of, a, part of the harem um, for the one-night chance with the, uh, uh, to be the queen of Persia. Mind you, the king was a Gentile, and marrying a Gentile was a no-no. No one in the story, not even the heroes of Esther, come out very well. When we look at the example of Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, we marvel at their courage. And we want to be like them, and we're supposed to be, uh, to be inspired by them. But if we're honest, though, who are we actually more like? Are we like Daniel? Are we like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Are we more like Esther? Are we more like Mordecai? Truth be told, I think we're much more like Mordecai and Esther, living in this sinful world and compromised in all sorts of ways. We're often forced in this world, maybe in our workplaces or in your family or whatever, to do things that we know isn't quite right, to exaggerate, to outright lie, to cheat, backstab, and gossip, and all those things that are there. But in our weakness, we've all done it. And sometimes we're not forced to do it, but sometimes we've done it because we wanted to advance. We want to get ahead. But take heart, because one of the biggest themes that you will see through the book of Esther is that God is still at work through weak people like you and I. You see, the Bible has never been about God will bless you if you are really, really good. In fact, it's the other way. The story and the theme line of the Bible is actually God will bless and give grace to those who actually don't even ask for it um, and who don't deserve it. And even when they get it, they don't seem to appreciate it either. So that's the thing. The world is sinful. Goodness and evil mingle about it, and we are sinful. <laughs> We're capable of, uh, capable of being Christ-like in one moment, in the very next moment, betray God altogether. What we see in this book is that God is greater than all of that. God is greater than you. God is greater than the powers of this world, and His will will be done in and through us in this sinful world. This is because with all our weakness and rebellion, 
in our hearts, God still loves us. And with all the evil in this world, it's still God's world. And one of the questions that we're supposed to ask then, right, is whose world is it? Who's in control? King Xerxes was arguably one of the most powerful people, powerful person perhaps, at that time living on the face of the earth. His kingdom is great. His power is great. But is he in control? Well, the context of the book tells us he probably had lost some power and control. He wants to gain more power. And not only that, more directly from the story, we see that, that even though he could command thousands of people, he can be thrown off by his wife, a person who just simply says, no, I won't do it. And think about the royal decree that he sent out when Queen Vashti refused. His advisors started to fear that what happened to the king might happen to all over the empire in their homes. And what if their wife simply said no to them? So they sent a royal edict out to the corners of the empire uh, saying that they should respect uh, the husbands from the least to the greatest. Now, let me ask you, does that show power? Or does that show their lack of power? It's lack of power, isn't it? It shows their insecurity, doesn't it? You see, they're not in control. No matter the power, the display of power, no matter what they think they have, they're not in control. But God is in control, and that's the message of the book of Esther. And get this, God is even in, con- in control even when God doesn't appear in the storyline at all. Even when people don't acknowledge his power. I don't know if you knew this about book of Esther, but Esther is unique in the Bible in that it doesn't mention God at all. It doesn't mention Uh, Yahweh, it doesn't mention Elohim or any other name or titles of God. God's absent from this book. Not only that, there's no miracle. There's no prophesying. There's no vision. Uh, Unlike book of Daniel, right? None of these miraculous things happen. In fact, um, if you ask, it's as if the writer of the book has intentionally avoided mentioning anything religious at all. In chapter 4, Esther will ask the Mordecai fast, and you think, well, if you're fasting, you're surely praying. But actually, that's not, that's not the implication. They just stop eating. They don't pray to God. And that's one of the reasons why this book, Esther, was hated for so long. Um, because, uh, for the seven centuries, first seven centuries of the Christian history, nobody wrote a single commentary on the book of Esther. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, hated the book so much, he says that he didn't want the book in the Bible because God's not there. But that's the whole point of the book. He doesn't seem to be there, but he is there. Let me quote an author. God's absence is never true. His silence is not absence. His, His hiddenness is not abandonment. He's working for your salvation. He's working out his promises. He's keeping his promises even when it looks like he's nowhere around. In the coming weeks, we will see in the story all these little coincidences that happen in the book of Esther. And we saw a few that set things in motion already, didn't we? The king had this great feast and gets drunk and wants to boast about his wife's beauty. And the wife actually says no. 
it gets her fired and then creates the opportunity for Esther to come to the throne. And Esther, defying all odds, pleases everyone that she meets, um, Haggai, and then the king, and she beguiles the king in just one night. And when we think of God acting, we think of God doing great things, miraculous things that show God's power. But you see, history is not made, history is not made of these big displays of power, but it's made up of chains of seemingly insignificant things, ordinary events linked up, and which sometimes people interpret as God's absence. But through them all, God is moving history towards his good purpose. He's in control. You might have come to the church today asking, where is God? And if you think about it, actually, it's a question that's very similar to what Jesus said on the cross. Jesus said himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, even through the greatest evil perpetrated upon the only good man in the history of the world, even as Jesus was asking, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? God was there, and he was accomplishing his purpose. He was saving us. So no matter how you feel today, abandoned by God, far away from him, maybe you're going through an illness, or you've failed at something, loneliness, or maybe you've been praying to God and God just hasn't answered, and God doesn't seem to be hearing you. Or maybe you're not yet, yet a Christian and you think, well, actually, I don't know if God is there. Friends, be assured, he's here and he's with you. He hasn't forgotten about you. Even in this sinful world, even in and through weak people like you and me, God is working and is working for the good of us, good of us who love him and are called according to his good purpose. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book of Esther that reminds us that you are in control through behind all of it. You are there working out your own perfect plan of salvation for the whole world. And Lord, help us to be people who trust you. Help us to be people who trust you in the midst of the sinful world. And Lord, may we live differently as a result of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond uh, to this passage by singing a great song that says, actually, let's lift our eyes up and see who God is. God who sits on the throne and is ordered and is ordering and sustaining the whole world from his throne. Let's behold our God. And this is also our offering song. Um, so this is an opportunity for the church family to uh, worship God with our money. But if you are a visitor with us, uh, don't feel obliged to give anything at all. This is for the, uh, the, the church family, for the works of the church. Please stand and let's sing together. Behold our God. <laughs> 